Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our regular conversation about disruptive innovation in Canada and around the world. I'm John Stackhouse. Today's guest is Dan Doktoroff, co-founder and CEO of Sidewalk Labs. That's the company building a new neighborhood on Toronto's waterfront that's meant to be a testbed for the city of the future. Sidewalk Labs is owned by Google's parent company, Alphabet, and they're trying to bring some of that Silicon Valley spirit to the centuries-old challenge of urban planning. Dan has quite the resume. He was deputy mayor of New York City, president of the Bloomberg Media Company, and head of New York's bid for the 2012 Olympics. Here's our conversation. Dan, welcome to RBC Disruptors. It's great to see you again. It's always great to see you, John. I think we first met uh, a number of years ago. You were running Bloomberg. I, I was editor of the Globe and Mail, and we met at my office in Toronto to talk about <laughs> disruption. So who would have thunk all these years <laughs> later? Uh, here I am at RBC, and uh, you're running Sidewalk Labs, which we'll talk about. Uh, it's a fascinating company. Just curious what you think about from your media days of disruption that, that is still relevant today. What are the lessons of disruption that you've carried forward? Yeah, I think it depends on whether you're an incumbent or you're a disruptor. You know, when I was at... You were a disruptor. <laughs> well, at Bloomberg, we were an incumbent, but I, the, the key thing was to always think like a disruptor. And um, you know, one of the things that I found when I got to the company and the culture really was sort of right out of Mike Bloomberg's personality was that you, know, you just never can be complacent, you know, whether it's a large competitor in our case, somebody like a Reuters, which had just merged with Thompson or you know, some new company that was coming along. There was always someone looking to knock you off. And then unless you were completely paranoid, unless you were constantly willing to challenge your basic assumptions about what you were doing, at some point you were going to get knocked off. And I, I'm really proud of the fact that even despite the financial crisis in the seven years that I was there, you know, we managed to really push ourselves and dramatically increase our market share and enter into new products and services and other markets. And it was only largely because the culture of the company was one that was constantly willing to evaluate sort of its basic premises. So only, only the paranoid survive. I, I think there's no doubt about that. Let's turn to cities. I think we may have had the same childhood experience of, of being dragged to Montreal in the late 1960s by our parents to see Expo after Expo 67. <laughs> and I was always, um, not at the time, but in years later, fascinated by this sort of human desire to create the city of the future. Everyone wants to uh, sort of build the, the Jetsons land. As you're expanding Sidewalk Labs and, and taking on Keyside in Toronto, trying to create in some ways the city of the future, or at least a lab for the city of the future, I'm wondering how you think about all the efforts over the uh, eons, frankly, of humans trying to create the city of the future, which never seems to become the city of the present. It's, it's a really good question. Where, where as a species have we messed up? I don't know if we've messed up. I think it's just hard. Um, you know, in preparing for kind of sidewalk labs and particularly what we hope to do here um, in Toronto, we, we did study over the last 50 years, I think there have been 150 or so attempts to create smart cities or urban innovation districts. And, you know, on some level, every single one of them has not 
lived up to expectations or has failed or has never got off the ground. And I think it's because basically as we've studied the lessons, people miss a couple of things. One is, is that integration between urbanism and technology. What we discovered, and to be honest, we've had to work through some of this ourselves, is that you know, if you think about it, simplify it, there's two kinds of people. There's urbanists and technologists. Urbanists study cities, plan cities, build cities, run cities. Uh, and then there's the technologists. Those two speak completely different languages. And you have to be able to bridge what we call the urbanist-technologist divide. We've tried to create a company that does that from inception, but obviously time will tell. I, I think a second thing that is a common mistake is that you can never really plan a city. You can create plans, but you can't plan a city. Cities are best when they evolve organically, when you know people have the freedom to build on top of what is there, sometimes to replace what is there. And that's in part why we have thought about our project as a platform. I use the uh, analogy of the smartphone, you know, sort of what made the smartphone so revolutionary. It comes in a really neat little package. It's got hardware. It's got software. There are design guidelines built into it. Yeah, whether it was Apple, Samsung, or others created applications for it before they launched it so that it could be usable, in fact, exciting. But really what made it magical is the fact that they opened it up enough for the millions of innovators around the world to use their own ideas and creativity to dream up applications that nobody ever thought of before. In fact, everybody in their own way made it their own and created value for every user. We sort of think of the city or the district in sort of the same way, that our job is to create the conditions for people to innovate on top of. And I think if we stay true to that, while still giving enough predictability so people can actually do that, then that will be the approach that ultimately helps to not get it right, because there is no right, but has an approach that actually is responsive to people's needs and desires over time. Can you describe briefly what Keyside is going to look like? It's a it's a twelve acre package of land or parcel of land on 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 the waterfront. We know that. Maybe explain a bit of, of the boundaries and w- once the plan is in place, what's it going to look like? Well, Keyside is the first first step. It's obviously a part of a much broader site. Um, as we go over the course of the next year to planning, that'll be the primary focus, but. Uh, you also have to recognize that urban systems, uh, in order to achieve scale, require kind of more size. So we'll also be looking at the broader area. Um, in terms of the broader area, the, east, the eastern waterfront. Water yeah. So people who aren't familiar of, with Toronto, there's the harbor with the island on the other side to the east, kind of a derelict portlands, as uh, it used to be called, where lots of ships used to come and go bringing uh, stuff for, for Toronto. So a bit of an industrial wasteland. Yeah, look, it was uh, it was uh, marshland that was filled in a little bit more than a hundred years ago. Never really fulfilled its promise. Uh, meanwhile, the waterfront has developed. I think 
generally successfully, you know, over the course of the last 15 or so years. And, you know, there's now this large area that um, I think is begging to be rethought. So in terms of what it'll look like over time, I don't think we know the answer to that. You know, we see this as a different kind of community, one that is incredibly dynamic, um, one that um, in effect, on some levels, corrects for some of the damage that was done to urban environments when we introduced the car. You know, our assumption here is that within this district, um, that there will only be autonomous vehicles other than for emergencies and other things, which gives us the possibility to do a lot of different things. One is to uh, require much less space um, for roads and parking, um, which enables you to have narrower streets, um, that enables you to have dramatically more open space. Um, we think it'll be reasonably dense, um, but not necessarily a series of tall towers. How many people do you think will well, you anticipate Well, it depends on there? what you're talking about. On Quayside, probably 5,000 or so as you expand out if it expands out, it can be significantly greater than that. Um, can you give us a, an estimate of how, how much greater? Eh, I think I'd probably wait to the conclusion of the planning process to do that. But I said we see it as hyperdynamic, kind of more dense, radically mixed use. Um, we see so businesses and retail um, coexisting with residential communities. We actually see it as being quite diverse. In fact, we set as an objective that um, this should um, reflect the socioeconomic or demographic diversity of the greater Toronto area, which means we will have an opportunity to tackle some of the really important urban challenges here that are uh, potentially not just physical, but also community or socially based. Uh, you know what? If, if you go back and you look um, at images of streets um, from before the car in terms of what physically it'll look like and, you know, take King Street, for example, at the turn of the 20th century with that, that activity spilling out onto it. You hope to get back to that while at the same time eliminating some of the nuisances that were there, you know, produce horse manure or line, to, uh, electrical or telegraph lines all over the place. We think we can put a lot of the infrastructure underground, which will make package deliveries and uh, the utilities easier to access or provide. So there's a lot of different things. Right. It when I was living in uh, Asia in the in, in the 1990s, I lived in New Delhi for a number of years, and would we would go to Singapore from time to time. And you can hardly find two cities that are, are greater contrast than Delhi and Singapore. And Singapore is very comfortable, but but very sterile. And as I compared the two cities, among the the differences, I always thought was that Delhi benefited from migration people pouring into the city. The, the, the city-state, Singapore, wouldn't <laughs> or controlled uh, in, 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 in migration. And it's that human dynamism that is the, 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 the secret sauce of cities. And this is, you talk about the difference between technologists and urbanists, and that, that's the secret sauce in between that, uh, that we so often undervalue. And I'm curious, as you sort of think about Keyside and lots of planning to be done, 
But how, what kind of ideas spring to mind uh, about how to ensure that there is that secret sauce, that not only there's a diversity of people who come, but a diversity of, of energy and ambition and passion and creativity, and that messy stuff happens because the messy stuff leads to progress. Well, for, first of all, I think the ambition of the effort itself will draw dreamers and people who want to experiment and um, try new things. So, uh, you know, I think that is a article of faith that we've always uh, believed in. But beyond that, um, it has to be also perceived as a place that is open to people creating and innovating on top of it, which is why this platform approach is really so important, is that we want people to believe that they can play a role in the creation of the place, not just at the beginning, but over time. We know that cities are best when they evolve you know, according to whatever the taste, technologies, and trends are at the time, and that people feel like they have a role in making that happen. And if we can succeed in, again, convincing people that this is that kind of open platform, I'm convinced that sort of dynamism um, will be a prominent, most important feature of the, the place that exists. This is a, a, a laboratory. You're quite open ab- about that. Uh, it's probably the, the first of its kind as an ur- ur- urban lab. So a fantastic, fantastic opportunity. Part of a lab, by definition, is a willingness to study and, and, and be studied, and uh, that will be done through data. So people moving around Keyside uh, will be tracked. They'll, they'll agree to that, as I understand it. But f- fair enough, lots of concerns are emerging around uh, privacy. And when I've watched or, or sat in on some of your town hall discussions, I'm intrigued that there is the, the level of concern about privacy that we're hearing. Are you surprised? Not at all. Uh, in fact, I think it's exactly the right response. Um, you know, we're living in a world today in which data, data, the use of data, Uh, The protection of data is uh, of great concern and should be. Uh, And so, you know, the fact that that would be applied in this way to a laboratory or, uh, you know, new approach to city building um, is not surprising at all. And uh, to be honest, it's, I think, one of the most important issues that we're going to have to deal with um, as we move forward through a planning process. In fact, we see sort of the planning to create sort of the right policies and uh, around data privacy, um, data protection, um, as really kind of occurring simultaneously and intertwined with the physical and technological planning of it. Um, to be honest, I'm not overly concerned um, that we won't find the right answers, in part because I know kind of that we believe in certain principles. Um, that I think will help to address concerns people have. You know, we believe in, you know, what is commonly referred to as privacy by design, that privacy protections need to be built right into the products and services that you embed into the place. Um, And therefore, you know, it is a focus literally from day one. 
Um, a second thing is, is that the data really shouldn't be used to be commercialized, that the data should be used um, to improve quality of life. Ultimately, this, all the technology, anything you talk about is only as good as the impact it has on quality of life. You know, can we make this place cheaper for people to live? Can we make it more convenient? Can we give people um, an environment that actually achieves climate positivity? You know, can we give them better access to opportunity and so on down the line? And that's what data should actually be used for. And then finally, with respect to some of the basic principles of privacy is, you know, transparency. Uh, transparency on multiple levels, but most importantly in the short term, that people feel confident that we're going to go through a very open and transparent policy process to uh, develop policies that will make this place function and make people feel comfortable um, with any use of data in this place. It's really important that we learn from Keyside. I mean, you're not doing this for uh, just the uh to get some kicks out of <laughs> creating the city of the future, I think you truly believe there is a planetary crisis, and your co-founder Larry Page uh, has has uh, spoken to that as as well. So we have to go about living, working, moving around cities differently, and our kids and grandkids certainly do. If uh, if the planet is going to have any measure of of sustainability, therefore we've got to kind of study Keyside and and learn from it. Seems to me it's a bit of a trade off here, and there's a there's a public good that must come out of that. And I assume people going into Keyside are, are willing to give up a bit of their um, privacy rights to their data because it's contributing to public I, I, I think that's going to be part of the discussion. Um, I'm not sure that you have to compromise in meaningful ways. Um, there are many ways of limiting the amount of data that's actually collected uh, leaving sort of destroying key data when it's collected and then it's taking sort of the overall statistics or metadata out and using it. There's lots of technology to be able to do that. So we don't think that there's going to have to be material compromise in order to understand this place, in order for people to build applications on top of it and use the data effectively. Um, but that's part of the pr the. the process that we'll go through to understand that over the course of, of this year. I do agree, however, that a primary purpose for doing this is to demonstrate what is actually possible in a relatively um, unconstrained environment, meaning on this site there's not a whole lot there. Um, and there are no people who live there now and therefore, people will be coming there with the knowledge that this is a different kind of place. And that if we can document what happens here and other cities around the world observe what's happening here, learn their own lessons from it, you know, adapt things to their own benefit or purpose, um, then what we can have is um, an impact that goes way beyond this particular place. And that's important to us. I think you've said the 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 primary, at least the the initial technology priority is going to be around mobility. It's one of them. I you know, in fact, um, we're we curious how 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 you see how you envision uh, mobility playing out in Keyside, whether it's the the top priority or not. It's 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 one of the key ones. How is uh, Keyside going to look and behave in your mind's eye 
uh, from a mobility perspective? I think when you start with the premise of self-driving cars, so much changes, as talked about before, um, the amount of open space can change. So the whole urban form can change. The streets can become narrower, creating that greater sense of density and dynamism. The streets are safer, and therefore children are freer to walk around, giving parents, for example, more time back in their day. If they have confidence, a child will be safe on the street. So that that one change produces, I think, meaningful opportunities. It also offers an opportunity to reduce costs for the residents um, who live there. You know, we have at least explored the idea of a different approach to mobility that relies on a combination of uh, on-demand self-driving cars, more bike lanes, much more walking in a mixed-use environment where hopefully a higher percentage of people will live and work within the district. We imagine sharing of vehicles in a much more intensive way, sort of like Zipcar writ large for people getting out of the district. We imagine a set of public or private transportation, some of which would be shared, that will take people to key areas within the GTA, because this place can't be an island. Obviously, you're going to have to accommodate people coming into the area. But we think that if you do that, that you can actually offer to people all of the benefits of a private automobile um, without the co- much of the cost. In fact, we think we can lower that cost quite dramatically um, without sacrificing convenience at all. And that ultimately is, to some extent, um, our objective. Um, it's, you know, can we actually achieve that dramatic reduction in costs without having to have a car, without sacrificing convenience? That's what we're shooting for. And, and there's also the opportunity to change the way that we deliver goods and uh, transport waste. Uh, I think we all sort of take for granted uh, the energy, literally the energy required to get uh, the, the quintessential loaf of bread into to the corner store and the, uh, the waste from that uh, out, of, uh, out of the neighborhood at at the end of the day. No, no, no question about it. You know, one of the things that we have explored and will continue to explore is underground utility channels um, that would not only be the places where your utilities um, would go, which would make them easier to access, therefore easier to fix, therefore you don't have to rip up the streets, um, but at the same time could also be the channels through which freight and garbage get delivered, you know, which can re- eliminate a lot of the unnecessary traffic on the street itself. Obviously, there's cost implications to that, but that's one of the things that we're actually looking looking at. So, yeah, we, we really see transportation um, being very difficult, different um, and potentially, I think, looking at a revolutionary approach here, but we have a lot of work to do to figure it out. Yeah. I'll, I'll date both of us here uh, with, with this thought, but do you remember the movie The Truman Show? Of course. <laughs> How do you avoid that uh, bubble, creating this perfect, utopic neighborhood where everything moves perfectly, magically, and is, of course, kind of devoid of humanity? Well, again, I think the key there, if you remember um, that there was central control in that 
um, Ed Harris, I think, played. Yeah, there was, there the, was a, the God figure. Exactly. And there is no God figure here. Um, this has to be a place of the people and for the people, created by the people, that can change as people's needs change, um, not um, done centrally. And that's why I said we sort of view our role as creating the conditions for people to innovate um, on top of, live their lives on top of, not actually trying to dictate everything that happens here. That would not work. That would be a failure. But doesn't there have to be a mayor of Keyside, someone who ultimately is going to decide that, uh, you know, there's no vehicles on the road after 10 p.m., autonomous or otherwise, whatever those decisions may be? We don't know what that governance um, system will actually be, whether, you know, the city or the certain areas, the province plays what role they actually play. Um, I suspect that. Uh, you know, as we get into that, we'll find that it's not governed dramatically different than other places. It's just what is possible here. How are you going to balance the challenges and friction of government versus innovation? This is a fascinating model where you're trying to do things very differently. And there's probably, I think it's fair to say, a, a fair bit of enthusiasm for that. But as time passes, Governments will raise legitimate concerns. You were deputy mayor of New York. You uh, you were trying to rebuild New York after 9-11. That's a, a massive challenge and came up against you know some pretty petty or parochial, to be polite, concerns that uh, slowed, uh, slowed you down. There was no – I'm sure Mike Bloomberg felt uh, he was nowhere near a god figure in no. New York in those days. But, so, but how do you balance – that tension, that natural tension between innovation and administration and the bureaucracy that goes with it? Well, uh, hopefully, first of all, going in up front, you have uh, that dialogue with the regulatory and legislative bodies so that they believe in what you're trying to do. Um, There's no doubt that in order to innovate, we will need regulatory or legislative approvals for things. And as it should be, that'll be part of sort of the traditional process of getting those things approved. The process for getting this approved at the end of the day has to be done in sort of the regular way. People have to feel comfortable that this has been a democratic decision that has tons of public input um, and ultimately is made by their representatives. Otherwise, it won't have credibility. And we are completely respectful and enthusiastic about that kind of engagement. We've said, you know, pretty much from day one that, you know, this has to be a process, process, I should say, of co-creation with the public and their elected officials and representatives and public sector officials, and that we're completely committed to that. In terms of making sure that Um, the place can adjust and adapt as new ideas come up. I think we have an opportunity to think about, you know, new models for evaluating regulation on a shorter time frame. Already the province, for example, has uh, an effort that they've, I think, relatively uh, recently kicked off called Open for Business that is designed to work with people innovating to 
look at new regulatory approaches to things, typically for pilots or prototypes, that you know may be a good early model. Um, we've spent a lot of time with uh, people in the various agencies of the city who I think are very open to engaging in that sort of um, dialogue. So, you know, we don't know the answers to that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, this is not some hived off techno enclave that exists on its own. This is a key part of the city and of the metropolitan area. Um, it has to be fully integrated into it. And the uh, management of it has to reflect sort of the traditional process, processes of democracy. We've talked in the past about uh, Lewis Mumford, the great uh, urban city thinker of the 20th century, and I've reread some of his uh, work before this this conversation, and was struck, even though it was uh, all done before the digital revolution, uh, how relevant it is today. And when he traces sort of the history of urban ambition, he he documents the tension between those who are trying to control and build back to Plato's time uh, and just the human mischievousness that we see in cities, wanting to just mess, uh, mess up your plans. And the great cities always find a balance to, uh, and you saw this in New York, and For it sure. thrives on that messiness, on that rebelliousness of the city dweller. Curious how you think about that in the context of, uh, of Keyside, how to allow people to break things, to disrupt things, to not seek permission to, to do things. I, we completely embrace that. I mean, Mumford also referred to the chaos of the city and um, that he meant that as positive. Um, we uh, maybe use a slightly different term, which is friction. Um, you know, cities are filled with friction. Some friction is really good, and that good friction includes serendipity, and uh, it includes diversity and unexpected um, experiences, and etc. There's bad friction too, um, which is you know unnecessary traffic and garbage piling up in the streets and things. And, you know, we see as our mission to really work to enhance that positive friction, which requires giving people the ability um, to create. And that platform approach, I think, is the right way to think about it. Um, but at the same time, trying to minimize bad friction. Um, and uh, I think that in there you can find that balance. Right. So I, I grew up in Toronto, uh, first part of my uh, life in Scarborough, uh, fairly close to the water and used to bike along uh, along the waterfront as a kid and as a teen. Uh, loved biking through uh, through the area that you're going to uh, to be working in. Did some things uh, in teen years that probably shouldn't be shared <laughs> on uh, a podcast and I'm probably not alone as a Toronto resident in that. Which is all to say there's a certain grittiness to the Portlands that, yeah, it needs, it needs change. Probably most Torontonians would uh, agree with that. But how do you ensure that that grittiness, that kind of literally on the waterfront edginess to it is not whitewashed? I don't know the answer to that question yet. Um, 
as I said, I think part of the answer is that you can't plan it down to um, the last detail or even anything close, uh, that you have to give people the opportunity um, to express themselves um, in lots of different ways. I, I do think you asked the question earlier, what's the place feel like? I, I think this place will feel, as I said, much more dynamic than a typical place. The buildings will probably be more flexible. They'll change more often. The retail environment, I would hope, would be more pop-up-y like. Um, I think all of that contributes to creating maybe not grittiness per se, but a dynamism that is ever exciting and changing and interesting, but that still meets people's needs. You're a sports fan. Is there going to be sports in, uh, in Keyside? There probably won't be a professional team if that's what you're <laughs> asking for. But obviously, look, I mean, rec sports and recreation are you know, a critical part of what people are looking for out of any environment, whether urban or not. Uh, one of the things I am really excited about is that if you think about the urban design, particularly as it uh, develops when you rethink the street grid, which you're able to do when you have less parking, less separation of roadways, is you can reclaim a lot of that land for open space. Um, and that can be s relatively small, very local open spaces, or it might be you know, parks running through the entire site. Um, in addition to what's already, you know, on sort of the the waterfront in any event. Um, so I would hope that you, you would see even higher levels of activity than you typically find in an urban environment because access to open space should be significantly greater. You may radically change ball hockey. <laughs> it's, po it's possible. <laughs> now, you know, you, you said the access to that sort of spaces where people can play, play ball hockey or whatever it is should be much greater if our hypothesis is correct. What's your biggest worry? Biggest worry is just how complicated this is. Uh, you know, as I said, there's been 150 attempts to think about this or do it, at least create a smart city or urban innovation district. Not one of them has lived up to expectations. And the reason for that is it's hard. It requires lots of different skills, working with lots of people. Um, you know, as we pointed out, the democratic process by necessity is is messy. Um, people are given um, important vested interests in what happens in their communities, and that's unpredictable. Um, but you know, I'm not daunted by that. It's just a reality. Uh, we we had to deal with that in New York. I, I was I was actually struck um, about uh, two weeks after we announced the partnership with Waterfront Toronto, with the three uh, leaders of uh, the three governments, um, we held a town hall. And 900 people showed up for the town hall, and I was expecting to get yelled at for three hours, uh, which would have happened in New York. People here were infinitely more polite um, and incredibly constructive. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this, um, you know, when you do things that are different. Um, it raises all sorts of important concerns that we're going to have to respond to. Um, all of that creates complexity, uh, and we're going to have to wade through that by being great listeners, by responding, 
um, by being really patient, um, yet at the same time, hopefully moving things forward. And, um, you know, that's all not easy, but I think the we've done enough work here to believe that the potential impact um, is so significant that the lives of people here in Toronto can be affected in a meaningful way that we can even begin to start showing what's possible, not just on the waterfront, but through prototypes and new approaches to things that we can try out throughout the greater Toronto area. We can begin to see, give people a sense for what's possible. And our hope is we'll come back with something at the end of this year long planning process that is so great that people really want to work with us to do something that no one's ever done anywhere in the world before. Dan Doctoroff, thanks for joining us in RBC Disruptors. Great. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced by Peter Henderson and Jennifer Marin. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.